this morning to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. As most all of you know, as I mentioned earlier in our service, we'll be having a, a baptism service after our church service this morning. It's going to begin at 3 o'clock at Rock Cut State Park. Uh, those being baptized will be baptized in Olson Lake, uh, which is uh, just a swimming beach there in Rock Cut State Park. You can enter Harlem Street entrance, just keep going straight ahead to Olson Lake. Uh, they're doing what baptism is. Baptism is an outward display of an inward reality. It's publicly declaring what has taken place in your soul, saying that, God, I've, I've, I've believed in Jesus, I've trusted in Jesus, this is how it has come about, and now I'm following Him. And I'm being, someone's being baptized, dunked, immersed in water as a sign, a demonstration of the picture of what it means to be washed and bathed in Christ. So that will take place today. I encourage all of you to return home after service. Grab a bite to eat. Grab a change of clothes. Put on your swim trunks if you want. And uh, come out to uh, Olson Lake for the service. There, if you want to stay and swim, you're welcome to stay and swim. It promises to be a, a wonderful time. In light of that event, I want to preach this morning from Acts chapter 8. We see an example of New Testament baptism. In this chapter, we see a man coming to faith in Christ. He sees a body of water and he is immersed in water as a sign of his faith in Christ. Let's read. I want to begin in verse 25 and read through the end of the chapter. So when they, that is probably Philip and the apostles, had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem. They were in Samaria and now they're going back to Jerusalem. And they were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a Lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road. As they went along the road, they came to some water and the Eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. It's one of the greatest stories in all the Bible. It's great because you can see the Lord working in the lives of people to spread the message of the gospel, to build His church and bring great glory to Himself. All that compacted into these words. It illustrates the sovereign hand of God in saving a soul. It illustrates a soft heart to receive the Gospel. It illustrates what a saving response to the Gospel looks like. And by way of outline this morning, I want to identify here three elements of saving faith that are always present when someone comes to know the Lord. First, I want you to notice a sovereign hand. A sovereign hand. See, before anybody ever gets saved from their sins, there needs to be a working of God's sovereign hand in their lives and the lives of others. The sovereign hand of God needs to prepare the hearts of those who believe. Because before anyone comes to saving faith, God needs to be at work. He must soften the heart of those ready to receive the Gospel. He must stir in the hearts of those bringing the Gospel to speak it to them. 
And we see the Lord stirring in the hearts right here in verse 26. It says, An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a, a desert road. Now at that moment, when God called Philip his journey, Philip was enjoying some very fruitful ministry in Samaria. I mean, early in the chapter, like in verse 5, we see that Philip went down, that is, Jerusalem's up in the mountains, and Philip went down to the city of Samaritan, of Samaria. And he began proclaiming Christ to them. And, and the crowds were paying attention to his words, as verse 6 says. And miracles were taking place through him. And there were much rejoicing in the city, and people were being healed of their diseases. And, and there was a great excitement there in the city. And as verse 12 says, many believed Philip when he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And they're being baptized, men and women alike, just all across. They're believing. Great revival has taken place here in Samaria. Even one of the city's most notorious sinners, Simon, the magician, was baptized and continued on with Philip. All this activity is taking place there in the city. And, and the apostles, verse 14 says, in Jerusalem, heard what was taking place in Samaria. Now, the Holy Spirit had not come to Samaria yet. It had just been in Jerusalem. And so the apostles went and they prayed for those in Samaria that the Holy Spirit might come. And verse 25 catches them on their return trip back up to Jerusalem. Now, it's not quite clear whether verse 25, whether Philip's there with that group or whether it's just the apostles. We don't exactly know. But we do know that it was in the midst of this faithful ministry as he was returning to Jerusalem and as the gospel was being preached to many villages of the Samaritans, that the sovereign hand of the Lord stepped into Philip's life through the words of an angel and directed him to leave the flourishing ministry of Samaria and go to this desolate place, the road to Gaza. Now, when we hear Gaza, it's the same Gaza that uh, we hear in the news today. It's part of the West Bank. It's where Palestinians live. It's uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, just southwest of Israel. Um, about 50 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So he had this uh, 50 mile trek that he was going to make. And as verse 26 indicates, it was a, a desert road. In fact, almost every road south of Jerusalem is a desert road. It's just barren. Once you get to Jerusalem, you start going south there to Bethany. And once you get south of Bethany, it becomes really dry. Um, really barren. And it is a desolate road. And so you think about this lonely place where uh, Philip was called to. And humanly speaking, it's difficult to understand why it is that God would call Philip from this prosperous ministry to travel along this desolate road. Got a call into a desert where there's nobody. Nobody's here in the deserts. But there was somebody. There was an Ethiopian eunuch. Because when Philip obeyed the Lord, God said to get up and go south to the road. Verse 27 says he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch. Because he saw him. He saw the chariot. Now we don't know. It could have been just as they were leaving Jerusalem. It could have been somewhat down the road. We don't know exactly where it was. But somewhere on this road down to Gaza, Philip encountered this man. It would have been an unusual sight. I mean, first of all, there was a chariot. Now, Chariots just didn't come by all the time. Maybe there was some uh, transporting of some goods, but this was a special fancy chariot from Ethiopia. That would have been a bit unusual. Only a few traveled by chariot in those days, maybe government officials or the wealthy, or in this case, dignities of state. Most people would walk or maybe ride a donkey or a, a camel, but a chariot was unusual. And as he looked at this chariot, um, he would have seen something else unusual. The the skin color of this man would have been a bit unusual. Most of the people around Israel at that time are olive-toned skin. Uh, but this man was from Ethiopia. He's from, northern, from Africa, kind of eastern Africa. And so he was black, just different looking than other people. And, and from the, the descriptions of the, of the chariot, certainly was said, this chariot's a long ways from home. And as he would have dug further a little bit, he would have discerned that he was from Ethiopia a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. A thousand miles south. South of Egypt. So you go across and you go south in Egypt and you find Ethiopia there. It would have taken this man probably two or three months to travel to Jerusalem. And now he was on his way back. In verse 27 we read who this man was. He was 
an Ethiopian eunuch. As he was castrated to serve in the Ethiopian government there. He was a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. So Candace was there reigning in Ethiopia. He was there, part of the inner circle, if you will. And in fact, he was the secretary of the treasury. It says there he was in charge of all her treasure. And so he, here was a man, Ethiopian government, from there, he was a secretary of finance, tremendous influence, tremendous resources at his disposal. Maybe he was making a secretary of state political visit up to Israel. We don't know exactly why, but we do know that one of his purposes, and perhaps even his prime purpose, was to head up to Jerusalem to worship. He was making a religious pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. Now, like any other nation, Ethiopia was entrenched in idolatry multiplicity of gods, but somehow in some way this man became a believer in the God of the Israelites traveling to Jerusalem to worship. And when we pick up the scene, he's returning from his trip. He is heading home. As verse 28 says, he was returning, sitting in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. It shows the man's further interest in the God of Israel reading the book of Isaiah. Even the fact that he had the book of Isaiah was incredible. It is amazing. In those days, Scripture was an expensive commodity. Everything was handwritten. Gutenberg hadn't been invented yet. right? Gutenberg hadn't come to invent his press yet. Everything is written by hand, difficult to obtain, and somehow this man from Ethiopia was able to obtain one. Maybe it was a uh, gift, political gift given to him um, for the libraries of Ethiopia. Maybe he had enough wealth that he purchased one for himself. Anyway, he's taken back, taking this, uh, um, this writing of Isaiah back, and, and I think that he's, he's treasuring the moment. I've got my hand on the prophet Isaiah. Normally, the Bibles in synagogues would stay at church. You'd hear them read on Sunday mornings. And you would go home and you'd come to church on Sunday mornings, you'd hear the Scripture read, but they were too expensive to loan out to the homes. If you want to read them, you have to come to the church. But here he's got one on the road, and he's reading Isaiah And we see the sovereign hand of God further guiding Philip here in verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. See, when God's hand is upon a life, He doesn't merely set the wheels in place and then say, okay, go do your thing. He continues. What God starts, He completes. And when God called Philip down to that desert road, He didn't leave him alone. Rather, God directed the steps of him who He had appointed to have a divine appointment with. And I love, again, Philip's obedience. When God said, get up and join the chariot, Philip got up. He ran and joined the chariot, as verse 30 says. And we see here in verse 30 that he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. At first glance, this might be a bit strange for us, right? When you're in your car reading, how many of you just read out loud? When you get on an airplane or a bus and you got a book you're reading, how many of you read out loud? Not many. With the abundance of literature around, we have learned that we can read to ourselves and we can read without aloud. But in a day when literature wasn't so available, when everything was handwritten and people weren't so practiced in reading, reading out loud was the custom. Augustine, the early church father, tells an encounter that he had with Ambrose of Milan. And with amazement, Augustine wrote in his confessions, as he read... His eyes merely glanced over the pages and his heart searched out the sense, but his voice and his tongue were silent. It's like, whoa, he can do that. Because back in those days, they couldn't. Here in the the ancient world here, was reading out loud. And here the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah the prophet. As Philip came up, he discerned what he was reading, Isaiah the prophet. And then he asked him the question, He said, do you understand what you are reading? In verse 30, he said, how could I unless someone guides me? He invited Philip to come up and join him there in the chariot. Now, it's amazing what he was reading. The passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth. 
You might recognize these words. These come from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 7 and 8. It's not an obscure portion of the epistle. It's right at the very heart of things, the climax where it shows Jesus in, in no more greater clarity than just right there. And, and I don't think it was an accident that the eunuch was reading these words just as Philip was coming up to the chariot. I believe there's a sovereign hand of God coming again, preparing the way for the eunuch to hear and receive the Gospel. As Isaiah 46, verse 10 says, that God is the one declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And here was the divine appointment that God had determined from the foundation of the world be the means through which the Ethiopian eunuch would hear the Gospel. He'd snatch Philip away from... Samaria, bring him down along the road. He'd get him into the chariot. This man would be reading Isaiah 53 as a prime suspect for believing. It was no accident. God declared it from ancient time. It was coming to pass. And I simply say this. When you encounter some sort of evangelistic situation, don't think that it came by chance. It comes by sovereign design. Oh, your circumstances may be different. You may not be summoned by a Spirit of God. You may not be summoned by an angel, but you will be under the hands of a sovereign God. And the people that you meet this week don't come across your path by chance. They come across by the sovereign hand of God. And it may just be this week you come across an Ethiopian eunuch who needs to hear of Jesus. Those questions about the Bible. It may just be that you are Philip, ready and able to answer questions and bring the Gospel to them. A great example of this took place when my wife was in college. She was on a skiing trip with some friends from UCLA and had gone up to uh, eastern L.A., way out there, and then went up the mountains to Big Bear, enjoyed a day of skiing, and uh, then was coming back down, down the mountain. The weather was bad. The roads were slick. And ahead of them, there was a car that had slidden off the road. And uh, sure enough, as they were driving, they went the same path and even hit the car in front of them. Avon said they didn't cause any damage to the cars, but just kind of you know, maybe bumped bumper to bumper or something. But there they were off the side of the road, slick road. They couldn't get out. They had to wait for help. And Yvonne, you said you waited for hours. No cell phones in those days. You couldn't just call somebody. You had to wait. And um, she was along the side, and the car they hit was a young woman, uh, about 20 years old. And she was really scared, what Yvonne said. And and, uh, you know, Vaughn was traveling with some of her friends from uh, a Bible study and uh, were able to talk to her and demonstrate to her just of her, her calmness and her trust in God in the midst of adversity. And in the process of things, she was able to share the Gospel with her. And uh, they invited her to church. She came to church and came to faith in Christ. And uh, eventually she married a Master's Seminary graduate and went into the ministry then with him being a pastor's wife. Her her life was changed forever because when she was sitting in her chariot, someone came and spoke with her. You call these things a coincidence or you can see the sovereign God, hand of God, working in her life, bringing bringing those to her with a message of hope when she was in need, causing her car to get stuck in the ditch and causing Yvonne and her friends to get caught in the same ditch so they might talk and converse and come to saving faith. That's always how it takes place. Now, we don't know how it takes place, but God's sovereign hand is behind every time someone believes. It's exactly what we see here in Acts. The sovereign hand of God. But we also see, my second point, a soft heart. A soft heart always must be present as well when someone comes to saving faith. Look back at verse 28. I want to kind of regress here to see the soft heart because we see here that the eunuch was reading the prophet Isaiah in the chariot. And as he was doing so, it indicated he had a heart for the Lord. I don't think this man's interest was academic, <clears throat> merely. I think he really wanted to know the truth about God. And was reading here in Isaiah. And, and I say this in light of the dialogue that takes place between him. Verse 30 and 31, he says, Do you understand what you're reading? And look at how, how teachable this man is. He says, how can I understand unless someone teaches me? Unless someone guides me? And inviting Philip to come up and guide him. And you can see his teachability all over these verses. It demonstrates his soft heart. First of all, he's reading his Bible. 
showing he's teachable. I mean, second, he's reading important portion of the Bible. He's trying to understand its meaning, but he can't quite get it. When approached and questioned by someone who wanted to, to give help, he wanted help. He wasn't ashamed of what he was reading. He wasn't proud, thinking, I can figure it out on my own. He wanted some help. Fourth, even the invitation extends to Philip shows his teachability. Here's someone who might help him. So come up, please. Why don't you help me? <clears throat> so when Philip got into the chariot, the, the eunuch had his question. His question ready to ask. He says this, Please tell me, of, of whom does the prophet say this? Does he speak of himself? Or does he speak of someone else? It's a, it's a good question. It's a, it's a question still Jews ask today. Who is Isaiah 53 talking about? And I think that the eunuch had learned about this question sometime in, in Jerusalem. I mean, think about the Jerusalem that the eunuch visited. It was Jerusalem saturated with Judaism. There's a, the temple there. Sacrifices are being offered. The entire Jewish system of religion was in place. It was functioning. There were Pharisees, Sadducees doing their thing. People coming and going. Right? They saw, he could only get to the court of the Gentiles, so he couldn't get in probably to see the altar, but he saw these lambs coming in. <laughs> coming in, he saw them carcasses leaving. He saw these bodies of these animals burned outside the camp. And looking at all these things, and, and perhaps he went to a synagogue service and heard rabbis teaching, and filled with Judaism was Jerusalem. But that wasn't the only thing going on in Jerusalem. Think about what took place several years before the uh, Ethiopian eunuch came there to Jerusalem. There had been a great stir in the city. A, a certain man had arisen claiming to be the Messiah. He was called by many the King of the Jews. He had a great following of people. John the Baptist, one of the greatest prophets Israel ever had known, testified that this man is the Christ. Behold, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This man claimed that he was the Messiah, claimed he was sent by God, claimed that he was the one who fulfilled the Scriptures. And then in Jerusalem, he was condemned to die. Pontius Pilate put him to death, crucified him, which he did. And that was only part of the because before this man was crucified, he told his followers that he would rise from the dead and that he would conquer death. And many of his followers claimed that they saw him after he had risen from the dead. These followers went into Jerusalem and began to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He is the one risen from the dead. Repent for your sins. Believe in Him. And they literally, as Acts 5.28 says, filled Jerusalem with their teaching. Thousands of people believed their message. And then a big persecution arose against the people and scattered them throughout the whole world, but some were still in Jerusalem. Now that happened several years before the Ethiopian eunuch had came to Jerusalem to worship. And through the years, though the years had passed, certainly there was still a stir in the city. I think a good illustration of that might be September 11th. I mean, how many years ago was it the trade towers were brought down by, by the terrorists? <clears throat> Seven years ago? And uh, how often do you hear 9-11 referred to? Every day? Every week? I would guess at least once a week I hear it. Think it's fair? Maybe every couple days? Maybe sometimes you hear it every day. It's just on our minds. Seven years ago, and nobody really has to take time to explain what 9-11 was. We have the images burned in our minds, the World Trade Centers burning down and planes flying into them just burned in our mind. It's a stir that is caused in America. Now, I want you to imagine, if this were possible, someone coming to America who's never heard of what took place in New York seven years ago. I was thinking about these, um, these prisoners uh, that were in Columbia recently released. I think they were released five years in prison. And Gordy was sharing a prayer meeting how, I read this, but just how, you know, if they thought about presidential candidate, Barack Obama wouldn't even be on their radar screen I mean, they wouldn't have heard of the gas prices when they went in was like you said, a dollar twenty-seven. Now, the gas price unheard of. But imagine if they were in there for seven years and they came out and they were just mixing with mainstream America. I think that their experience would have been similar to what took place with the Ethiopian eunuch. There would have been this 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 talk about 9/11, 9/11, 9/11. Like, what? What is 9/11? Is that like a new convenience store? Like 7/11, 9/11? Except they open a little bit later. What is this? I don't know. And someone would be glad to explain what took place. Well, that's what took place with the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe he's in the temple worshiping the Lord, overheard some Jewish people talking about Isaiah 53. Oh, it can't be him. It can't be him. 
Oh, yes, it can. No, it can't. Maybe he heard a rabbi teach from Isaiah 53 in a polemical manner in which he was somehow talking about this issue, but there was something greater going on. I don't quite understand. Because he never mentioned the word Jesus, never mentioned the Messiah coming to Jerusalem a couple of years ago. He just spoke about how this wasn't a man. This was Israel or Isaiah or something. Maybe he heard about Christianity, but didn't know much about it. But somehow he figured that it linked to this portion of Scripture. Somehow I think something was compelling him to read from Isaiah 53. He wanted to know his inquiries were real because he had a, a soft heart. But I want you to notice that the eunuch wasn't the only one that soft heart. I think Philip also had a heart that was soft, open to the leading of the Spirit. Look at verse 35. It says, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Philip was open to the Spirit of God moving him to preach the Gospel to this eunuch. And he began right here in Isaiah 53, which he was reading. And he did this without notes, without any type of preparation. I'm sure he just looked at the text and started to explain it. I just want to show you maybe what he did. Let me move the pulpit aside here a little bit. Let me, let me grab a few chairs here. I need a eunuch. I need, I need, a, I need a eunuch. You got Ray? I was thinking about Greg Christensen. How about Greg? Why don't you come on up here? <laughs> come on, Greg. Get, bring your Bible. Bring your Bible. I don't know what version you got, but I do know. You've got a... Yeah, you got the MacArthur Study Bible. You've reached the promised land, buddy. <laughs> okay, now, now, oftentimes it happens this in a, in a skit, right? right we're, kind of, we're, we're riding along. So if you, <laughs> if you want to bounce, buddy, you can, you can do that. We're, we're riding along in the chariot, and... Um, <laughs> I'm looking here and I say, whoa, you've got the scroll of Isaiah. That is, that's a precious, that's a precious thing. What, what are you reading here? Let's, let's look here, Isaiah. What do you got here? Isaiah 53. Okay, we're getting, are you reading Isaiah? He gets Isaiah 53. Here, why don't you? There verse 7 and 8. You've been reading this, right? And it says, why don't you read it? Go ahead. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And your question to me, do you remember what Acts 8 said? What was your question to me? Okay, is it talking about Isaiah or is he talking about someone else? And I would say, listen, Mr. Eunuch, he's, 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 not talking about, he's not talking about Isaiah. He's not talking about, some people say he's talking about Israel. He's not talking about Israel. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Um, have you heard about Jesus? Do you know anything about Jesus? L- l- let me tell you about this, this Jesus. He, he about several years ago, I think it was about five years ago, he, uh, he rose, he came into uh, Israel and was doing good. He was claimed to be the Messiah, and, and you can just even talk to a lot of people the good that he was doing. He went about, walked righteously, he healed people, he taught wonderfully well, but he gained a following, and the, the Jewish people didn't like it. I mean, they, they didn't like it at all, and so they were from, from jealousy, they handed it up to Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate several times says, he's innocent, well, what, what should I do with him? And they said, crucify him, crucify him, and Pilate said, no, he's innocent, and, and sought to free him and release him. But uh, the, the Jews insist on that, and even one point Pilate washed his hands with the water and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood, but you do as you wish. And he went and he crucified him. That's who Jesus was. But the, the, the amazing thing is about Jesus is he, he rose from the dead and his followers saw him and they, they began preaching in Jerusalem all about Jesus. And this passage you're reading isn't talking about Isaiah. It's not talking about Israel. It's talking about Jesus. Let's, let's read here, verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to slaughter, as a sheep, before it shears his silence, so he did not open his mouth. This is Jesus exactly. I mean, he was oppressed and afflicted. If you would have seen the, the struggles and difficulties he faced, he was flogged 
by the Roman soldiers. He was mocked. They spit upon him. They put the crown upon him. They robed him with purple and said, Hail, King of the Jews, just mocking him. They, they said, Okay, if you're a prophet, they blindfolded him and beat him. and said, Okay, who, who hit you now? Prophesy. And when he was upon the cross, these people just slandered him. And they said, well, Look at him. He saved others. He can't save himself. If you are the Christ, they wagged their heads at him and they made fun of him. Even the thieves on the cross were, were deriding him. And he was oppressed and afflicted. But the amazing thing is, through it all, he didn't open his mouth. He was quiet throughout, just as what your reading says. He was quiet when he stood before Pilate, stood before Herod. He didn't say a word, and it amazed these guys. What, you're not even defending yourself? He didn't defend himself in any single way, except to say a few things. Some of them say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. I mean, if anything showed his sinlessness, it was that. That he was one who, who, who was trusting the Lord for all things and had compassion and mercy to these people. And, and he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. You know, Isaiah wasn't led as a lamb to the slaughter like that. But he was. And he was taken from prison, it says here in verse 8, and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? You know, the people, if they would have known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory if they'd have known who he was. But they didn't know. And they can't declare it to their generations. He was cut off from the land of the living. But here's the key right, right here, Mr. Eunuch. He says, For the, the transgressions of my people he was stricken. You see, Jesus was stricken for the transgressions of my people. In, in other words, that, that he was stricken so that we wouldn't be stricken. And that's what Jesus is. Okay. What's the say there, Mr. Eunuch? Okay, we're stepping out of this skit right now to say this. In verse 35, it says that he, beginning with this passage, he preached Jesus to him. So, let's, let's, let's go beyond this passage. Right? Let's, let's look at verse 9, what it says. And they made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death. But they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This amazing thing of how accurate this is that, that Jesus was crucified as a criminal, put upon the cross as one who, who died, as a, as a thief, as, a, as an insurrectionist, as one who was um, you know, against a traitor, against the nation of Israel. And he was with the wicked. And yet, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, a godly man, he was a rich man. He had just hewn out for himself a tomb where he would be placed and his family would be placed. Nobody ever laid there before. And that's where Jesus was placed. So he was with the wicked, and he was with a rich man, just like verse 9 says. And then verse 10 says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He was put to grief. What an amazing thing that is. When you make his soul as an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. The pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You know, one of the problems that people have with assigning Jesus as this suffering servant is that God would never crush and kill his Messiah. <clears throat> but here it says that God was pleased to crush him because God saw that in crushing his son he could save his people. And that's exactly what's done. In fact, if you go back in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4, 5, and 6, I mean, time and time again it says that he bore our sins, he bore our griefs, he bore our sorrows. Look what it says here, Mr. Eunuch. Surely he has borne our griefs, he carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, <clears throat> smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. <clears throat> there it is, time again. He's bearing our, our griefs. Do you see it there in verse 4? He's, he's carrying our sorrows. He, our sorrows are on him. He's carrying them. He was wounded for our transgressions. Our transgressions are the reason why he was wounded, because he took the punishment that we deserved. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes were healed, right? When, when he was striped, when he was beaten, when he was flogged, when he died, that was our healing because God was punishing him instead of us. This is substitution. It says at the end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's, that's Jesus. And, and I'm glad that you have Isaiah here because Isaiah speaks so much about Jesus. In fact, here, let me, let me get my hands in the scroll. This is wonderful. Outside the tabernacle to have this thing. Isaiah chapter 7. Look at verse 14. So much identifies Jesus. It says, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. You know, it's, it's an amazing thing. Before Jesus was, was born, He was born of Mary. 
and um, Mary was betrothed with Joseph. That means that, that was they were engaged. And um, before they were married, Gabriel came and visited Mary and said, Mary, you're going to have a child. She says, how can I have a child? I'm a virgin. And he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and conceive in you that which is holy to the Lord. Exactly what Isaiah 7.14 had prophesied hundreds of years before. And this said, you shall call his name Emmanuel. I'm not sure how good your Hebrew is. you remember what Emmanuel means? No. Can you remind me? God with us. Here it is. Born of a virgin, God is going to be with us. That is, in fact, over in chapter 9, it, it says a similar thing. It says in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, right? Uh, of a virgin, you can allude, and unto us a son is given. But look at what this son is going to be. The government will rest upon his shoulders. He's going to be the ruler. He's going to be the mighty one. He's going to be the Messiah. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. He was Emmanuel, God with us, becoming the everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there'll be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here is a child be born to us, but this child is going to be God. I mean, that's what Emmanuel says. So maybe you remember back in Isaiah chapter 6 when the seraphim had six wings, two they covered their eyes and two they covered their feet and with two they flew. And we're flying around saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Do you know who that was? That was Jesus. God with us. In fact, Jesus even taught that just shortly before He came in to be crucified. Uh, if you have the Gospel of John, it's in John chapter 12. But I'm not sure if that's been written yet. So, we, we have that here. But, but He taught it. And here we see in Isaiah 6, that is, that is God. And, and this Messiah is also mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11. And here in Isaiah chapter 11, it says that the Messiah has come one forth from, from the rod, forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Now, if anybody describes Jesus, if any verse does, this verse describes Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. John the Baptist, when he baptized him, he said, I saw the Spirit coming down like a dove resting upon him. And he had a mighty strong spirit. He walked in holiness and purity. He had a spirit of wisdom and understanding. He knew what was in every man's heart. His understanding was amazing. When he, he, he was tried to trap intellectually by the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees coming against him, and they asked him these difficult questions, he answered every single one of them, putting in their place, so much so that they dared not try to trap him again in any of his questionings, any of their questionings. He had a spirit of counsel and might. I mean, he had unbelievable power. He cast demons out of, out of people. He cast legions of demons. Out of, he made people who were sick for 12 years. He made a woman. She was bent over like this, made her stand straight, had a, had a withering hand. A man with a withered hand came into the temple and he healed that. It was unbelievable. He walked on water. He fed thousands of people with just a, a few loaves of bread and some fish. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord was upon him. This is Jesus. And he was, it says here in chapter 11, verse 1, from the stem of Jesse. Now, Jesse was David's father. And he was from the line of David. And back in Isaiah chapter 9, it speaks about upon the throne of David and of his kingdom, there'd be no end. So, one of the questions that the Jewish rabbis always talk about is that the, the Messiah couldn't be God because he's going to be from the son of David. I mean, because it, it speaks here. Um, in Isaiah 9, it speaks in Isaiah 11 about how the son of David will be the Messiah. And, and how can he be God as well? And um, he said, of course he can't be God. But, but Jesus, quoted from Psalm 110. You don't have the Psalms. Here's what he did. He said, from Psalm 110, David is writing, and he said, the, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Think about that. That is David writing and said, the Lord, this is God, said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool over your feet. That is messianic. That's the Messiah. But how can the Messiah be His Son if He is His Lord? It can only be if He was Emmanuel, God with us. It's the only way it could be. And so a lot of times, often, often people, people question, well, how could Messiah be killed? Isn't Messiah supposed to come and rule and reign? Isn't he supposed to be majestic? How is it that he's going to suffer and die? But Mr. Eunuch, the, the Scriptures speak about this. Well, maybe you could take out a pencil and write this down or, or, or a 
quill or whatever. You don't have one. But you just remember it. Here, listen. You'll hear it sometime. Psalm 118, verse 22 says, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And, and, and Jesus even said that. He prophesied of what was going to take place. Here was the stone. These rulers rejected that stone, but that stone has become the very cornerstone. And if you read there in Psalm 118, it even comes in the Messianic uh, prophecy of the people saying, Hosanna, God save us, which they did with Jesus on Palm Sunday when he, he came in uh, riding on a donkey because he was the king in, in fulfillment of Zechariah 9, chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 9. He was coming in, proclaiming him, and he said, The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Jesus knew that he had to be rejected. And the psalmist knew that. Psalm, verse, Psalm 2 says that. Why are the nations raging and the kingdoms in, in an uproar? They're against the Lord and against His anointed. And they're conspiring against God and against His anointed. And God says as He sits in His heavens and laughs, and He says in Psalm chapter 2, I think it's verse 5, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. He is the one who's going to be established and rule and reign. You may be against Him, you may thwart Him, and all your plans aren't going to come to pass. But they did. Surely they killed him. But it's exactly in God's command, exactly what God knew was going to take place. In fact, even you think, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where the first preachings of the gospel, it said to, that God was speaking to Satan. He says, to your seed and her seed, right? The, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. He said that your seed will bruise him on the heel, but her seed will bruise you on the head. And it's confusing, but it probably means this. And when, the, when the Messiah comes, he's going to receive a, um, a, a wound, but just a, a flesh wound. But the Messiah, he's going to come and smash with a death wound Satan, the seed of Satan. And that's what happened, right? They, they gave Jesus merely a, a, a flesh wound in putting him to death upon the cross. And he, he died upon the cross. But he rose again and he conquered death and he smashed Satan under his feet by raising from the dead. And even the Bible speaks about how he'd raised from the dead. Uh, Psalm 16 speaks about how the Lord won't abandon my soul to Hades. Right? I'm, gonna, I'm not going to suffer decay. And that's what Jesus was. Jesus was died, he buried, he, he rose again. And when Jesus rose again, in fact, even we're still in Isaiah 53 here, right? Mm-hmm. Isaiah 53 verse 11 says, And he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied that is an allusion to the resurrection that, that the Messiah would be put to death like Isaiah 53 says, but he's going to rise and see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. It's talking about the, the resurrection. And the resurrection is a big proof that Jesus was who he said he was before he went up to Jerusalem on several occasions. He told his disciples, now the Son of Man is going to go up, he's going to be betrayed, and he's going to be handed over the chief priests, the rulers, and the elders, and they're going to beat him and mock him and scourge him and crucified him and he's going to die and he's going to be put to death and they're going to put him in the grave. But, I'm going to rise again. And indeed, that's exactly what Jesus did in accordance with Isaiah 53. He rose again and the fact that he rose again demonstrates that he is who he said he was. He is the one. He's the Messiah sitting and ruling above all and he's the one who's going to someday come and judge the world. And see, the good news for you is this, is that though... God has overlooked the times of ignorance. Now He's declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent, that they should seek Him, they should turn from their ways and, and follow after Him. And, and, and that's why I am a disciple of Christ. One of the things that Christ told me to do was go into all the world and preach the Gospel to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that He commanded us. And that's all I'm doing. I'm just bringing the Gospel to you and Mr. Eunuch, will you believe? You repent of your sins. Right? Great. You can go sit down. Alright. Thank you, Mr. Eunuch. That's something that happened. Can you do that? Can you do that? Philip could. It's not something real hard to do. But you should be able to take somebody, if they're open to Scripture, to look at it and, and read them through and kind of talk about it. And I, I talked on and on and on and on and on. I kind of wanted to prove a point a little bit. But you can just talk whatever you know. You ought to saturate your mind so that wherever someone comes to Scriptures, maybe have a question, you can, you can bring it out and just talk to them about, about Christ. And if, perhaps it could be that if the sovereign hand is preparing the hearts and you find a soft heart you're talking to, you might see a saving response. 
So we see here with the Ethiopian eunuch in verse 36 and following. Here's how Greg responded, the Ethiopian eunuch. As he went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? This is a saving response. He says, I want to be baptized. Apparently in some, some of Philip's preaching was the mentioning of baptism. You know, I, I quoted from Matthew 28, but maybe Philip preached as Peter did. When Peter said in Acts 2.38, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Maybe Philip borrowed the phrase from the words of Ananias, right, who would speak to Ananias in the future. said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling upon His name. Somehow baptism was in this gospel presentation as he preached Jesus to him. And however he heard of the need to be baptized, the eunuch was, was ready to respond. really demonstrated his, his heart, his soft heart. And Philip clarified the re- requirements for baptism here in verse 37. He says, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. And the Ethiopian responded, I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he believed all those Scriptures. He believed Isaiah 53. He believed Isaiah 7. He believed Isaiah 6. He believed Isaiah 9. He believed Psalm 16. He believed Psalm 2. He believed Psalm 110. He believed Psalm 118. And others he may have believed. Now, I need to say something here. Verse 37, that most ancient manuscripts don't include this verse. When Luke wrote down the book of Acts, he may well have not written verse 37. Maybe it was inserted later. Maybe Luke wrote it. We don't know, but it doesn't matter because they're true. It does put forth what the requirements of baptism. The only requirements for being baptized, you've placed your faith in Christ. That is it. You don't have to perform religious works in order to be baptized. You don't have to earn it through a series of classes you take. You don't have to give money so as to be able to be baptized. You simply need to believe in Jesus. That's all baptism is. It's an opportunity for you to tell the world, I'm a follower of Christ. It's an opportunity for you to be dunked in water so you can symbolize your complete washing of your sins. It's an opportunity for you to be obedient to the Lord. It's what God told us all to do. I mean, isn't that what Philip, an Ethiopian eunuch, did here in verse 38? He says, I want to be baptized. Do you believe? Yes, I believe. And so immediately, right then... He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and they baptized him. This is clear proof, as any in the New Testament, baptisms by immersion. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into water. This by sprinkling. He said, I got a cup right here. Why don't you baptize me? That wasn't it, right? There's a pool of water on the desert road. It was unusual. He said, oh, look, we've come across this mud pit maybe, right? We've come across this, this pool of water. Can I be baptized? He says, if you believe in Jesus, you can. And he went down and he was dunked. He was immersed. He was submerged. That's what baptism means. And the application really comes to you this morning. If you've never been baptized, it's a great opportunity for you to be baptized this afternoon. There's still time. Maybe the Lord's been tugging on your heart. The Lord's been tugging at your heart because you've not been obedient to Him. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you're 50 years old. You've not been baptized. You should be baptized in obedience to God. If you're a follower of Christ, if you believe in Jesus never been baptized, you should come talk to me after service and be baptized today at Olson Lake. You said, well, I'm not ready. Well, you said, I live far away. Well, go home wet, you know. It's okay. We'll loan you some clothes or something. You have more opportunities, but here's one. If God's tugging on your heart, be baptized. We see the sovereign hand of the Lord as I close up this text here in verse 39 and 40. Again, working one more time. When they came up out of the water, the Lord, Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away and the eunuch no longer saw him but went on his way rejoicing. Now, Philip found himself in Azotus. He passed through. He kept preaching the Gospel to Caesarea. Azotus is about 20 miles north of Gaza and uh, uh, Caesarea is another 50 miles north of that. And now we don't know how it is that he was snatched up. It may have been a miraculous experience like he was instantly vaporized, gone, and snatched over there with the angels coming and talking. I wouldn't doubt that that took place. Or it may have been that maybe they reached the juncture in the road where Gaza's going that, that way, and to get to Azotus, you just keep going straight. And uh, maybe at that point, it's right at the juncture where there was an oasis of some type, 
right? It makes sense that there's an oasis there to judge. Maybe they continued down to Gaza and he went this way, got up out of the water and said, see you, have a good life in Ethiopia. Uh, I'm going this way. And he went to his other... We don't know how exactly it was, but anyway, God, again, guided him. Philip was no longer needed. The Gospel came to this man and bring it back to Ethiopia. And we don't know... The Bible is silent on what took place for this man, but Irenaeus, writing 150 years later, wrote about what took place for this man. He said he became a missionary to his own people in Ethiopia. Maybe he gave up his, his uh, role as secretary of the treasury and went to be a Christian missionary. We don't know, but we know that his Christian influence came to Ethiopia because Irenaeus, 150 years later, knew of that influence. But what's, what's important here, we're looking here at a, a response a saving response, is that he responded the way all Christians respond. The response of all believers in Christ is joy. He was happy. It's not a joy in following a man. It's not a joy in following some ideas. It's not a joy in following Philip or having an inner circle with the apostles. It's joy in following the Savior. It didn't matter that Philip was no longer there because he had the message. And it was the message of the Gospel, the the realities of Christ that gave him great joy. And I simply ask you this morning, do you know this joy? Do you know the joy of following Christ? Are you following the Savior? Do you have saving faith? Let's pray. And Lord, I would pray today that You might encourage us who have saving faith here today to rejoice in our Christ. I think as I preached Jesus to Greg, I pray that those words might resonate in our heart. That's, that's the joy we have of, of knowing of Jesus, the One who fulfilled everything in the Old Testament and the New Testament gives us wonderful reasons to believe in Him, especially as it interprets His life. And I pray You'd give us a, a joy in following Him. I pray for those being baptized today. I pray that You would give them the joy of the Lord as well. That they would go forth um, today is the day of their baptism, rejoicing. I pray you give them strength. I pray for those, even today, upon the, the shores of the beach who hear testimonies of people being baptized. At least three today, maybe more. Uh, I pray even that the non-Christians who are there would um, be convicted of the sin and, and see their need of a Savior and that you would use this to further your glory and to further your kingdom. I pray you'd help us today. I pray that you would God, even show us of, of our own lives. We reflect upon our own testimonies of your sovereign hand in guiding us and the soft heart that you've given us and the saving response that we've experienced. God, I thank you for, for Christ and how in him there is a, a saving faith that is wonderful. I pray you'd help us in these days. Be with us and guide us the rest of the day. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.